0: I'm going to put on my Stephen A. Smith hot take certified hat. I'm going to say we're entering our like Cleveland Cavaliers Gold State Warriors era in the OUA.
1: Hello and welcome to At The 55, your home for OUA football. The OUA semis are in the book. We have our Yates Cup matchup it is a rematch of 2021 with the queen's golden gales coming to london to take on the mustangs but before we get into that we have to break down how we got there joining me we have nate hobbs tom sterling on the mics uh gentlemen i know i was in attendance for the london the western game i should say against the golden hawks i know you two were probably monitoring both games uh at home what was uh what was the vibe like nate i'll start with you uh checking on these games not the Not the barn burners we thought we might have been getting, but you know, we did think that these games could have gone sideways as they
0: both ultimately kind of did. No, definitely, and a bit of interest early on with, you know, Laurier going up early and Hillock throwing his first pick of the year and Western seemingly struggling to get going on offense early, but like they always do, uh, they figure things out in the end. and, And it's funny, and Queen's kind of a, you know, almost a a bit of a different story with them getting off to a hot start. And you thought, well, maybe they're just going to roll here, but no, Ottawa coming back and making it close. But ultimately, you know, I feel like we've kind of reached what was, you know, our final destiny here. Uh, And these teams were always kind of throughout the year, keeping on each other. And we always felt, I feel like as a podcast, we felt like this was probably the most likely outcome. And, you know, we're back to, to, you know, Yoda and uh, and Obi-Wan facing, however you want to say it, you know, the master and the and the student going back head-to-head. So, I, I mean, good games on the weekend, but ultimately, you know, I'm super excited for this matchup we have coming up next weekend.
1: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Ottawa bringing it close, and we'll get into the games more detailed, but the the touchdown to start the third quarter, they run the play-action, Miracle boots, pump fakes the one guy, and then just down that, the sideline. That, too. That, that's
0: kind of, like, for me personally, as the former, the man, that was like a play of the year candidate for me. That was outrageous. You know, that was 80 yards sick. on a line, on the money. That was, <laughs> that was outstanding. I was going to highlight that during the game, but that was really unbelievable play by Ben. Yeah, going back through that game this morning, having not seen it live, I was like, this is
1: unreal. Tom, what was your OUA semifinal watching experience like? Yeah, it was
2: just fantastic to see. It was really interesting as well because in our Uh, preview podcast for everything. Nate kind of detailed it pretty heavily that both of these teams have the capabilities to kind of run away with the ball and everything. And when I was watching specifically the Queens game, it was exactly what Nate said. I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be a steamrolling. And then Ottawa comes into that third quarter that we mentioned was so important when you're playing against Queens and scores 10 unanswered. And we go, oh, wow, like it's going to get into something. And then they trade a, a pair of field goals and it still seems kind of close, but Queens is sort of taking away with it. Um, and then obviously ended up winning the game, but it was really interesting to see that, uh, the trend of the entire year was that it was kind of close in the first half and then queen separates in the third quarter. And that was com- kind of completely the opposite there. And Western and Laurier, I loved, not only do you get the pick six, but right afterwards you go for the onside kick and try to capitalize on that again. Uh, I love the play calling there by coach Folds, and, uh, I'm sure Todd Galloway and those guys had a you know, kind of say in that to try and kick them while they're down and get as many points as you possibly can. Obviously didn't end up going well for them. And I think that game specifically was a really big showing of Western coming out kind of close and then just pulling away. But um, it was great football to watch at the very least.
0: And one, And one last thing is November. And I feel like the wind was like such a huge factor in both games, really played yeah. like such a significant role in – the outcomes of the games for one thing, but secondly, obviously, you know, you can kind of see teams working that into their strategy throughout the game. Like the Laurier game, like you said, perfect example of trying to get that onside kick when you have the wind Um, and Ottawa not being able to capitalize in their first quarter when they had the wind, ultimately, you know, a big part of their downfall as well. Yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead, Tom. I was just going to say, I think that goes back
2: to the home field advantage, right? Like Nate, you can probably speak to it better than either of us can, but going in and playing at Queens, practicing at that stadium constantly, like the wind there is always wicked. So obviously all of those Queens guys are specifically Freaking and I uh, used to everything that's there. Like I remember... You know, we were just talking about Ben Maracle's unbelievable throw down the sidelines and everything. But uh, earlier in that game, he threw up a ball and it just died instantly and went straight down. It was supposed to be probably another 40-yard toss and ended up being like 15 because it just hit the wind and then died. And you can see that while obviously Queens had the similar issues, all of the receivers were fighting backwards to get to the ball because they knew the wind was such an issue. Same thing with Western. I know that Evan was a little off with his throws in the first quarter, obviously the, uh, that pick six and everything, but you could see them adjusting to things. And then obviously with Western just relying on that unbelievable run game, but both Western and Queens used to ha- having to deal with that wicked wins, both in London and in Kingston. And that really, I think showed out for them. They were able to handle that and get to win.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was I've been deliberating giving the wind our special teams player of the week award Um, Mm -hmm. and we'll get to our weekly awards in a moment, but you both highlighted how these were games that were very tight at the half for different reasons playing out in both before we get into our business as usual. There was more football being played this weekend that while not OUA specific, it's Canadian football specific and it was nowhere near close at the half. I'm sure you know I'm referring to the, I don't even know if it's right to call it a game that took place between IMG Academy, a a prep academy down in Florida that was playing a... Supposed prep school out of Toronto, West Toronto prep that was called at half due to a 96 to nothing lead. Uh, I'll let you guess uh, which of the two teams was holding that lead. This is created, um, you know, we were kind of talking beforehand whether it's something that we ought to talk about and sort of in quickly deliberating. It's like this is this is an international story because this is making headlines. I have just if you just Google IMG Academy, West Toronto prep, you will get Sports Illustrated articles, TMZ, USA Today. This is something that's not only creating a buzz here and it feels like a very, um, not reactionary in a negative way, but it feels, you know, Football Ontario has already put out a statement about, you know, recognizing that this is not representative of what Canadian football, specifically in Ontario, with this being a program based out of the West End of Toronto, has to offer. My my brief thoughts on it, because I don't want to belabor the point too much. Ultimately, I I don't know what the sort of, if we're going to br- paint with a broad brush, what Americans think of Canadian football. I'm assuming they don't think it is the best if we we're going to survey like a, you know, a thousand Americans who follow football, what they think of Canadian football. I'm sure it's not great to begin with. I'm sure this didn't help that image. But at the end of the day we we know what Canadian football has to offer. I'm sure there are things I'm missing as far as the tangible effects of what kinds of impacts this could have on Canadian football. Ultimately, if they're just going to laugh at us, if they're going to think that, oh, we knew you were good at football, it's like, well, whatever. We just keep doing our thing. And the, the irony, of course, is that there are Canadians that go down to IMG Academy for a variety of programs, not just in football, but in basketball as well and other sports. Ultimately, is this is a bad look. Yes, Might it shed some light on some of these prep schools and the way that they run and perhaps some issues that have not come to light and that this unfortunate game um, has now brought to light? Sure, and maybe that's a positive. Ultimately, it's, it's, it's... I don't know. It's... It it is what it is, and we'll see what good we can come bring out of this. Um, Nate, uh, I know we were talking beforehand. You've played on a few travel teams like Team Ontario growing up and things like that, and have gotten opportunities to play some American programs. Uh, uh, uh sort of in in your time. Uh, what's sort of your take on uh,
0: on all this? Yeah, it's an unfortunate situation. You know, uh, being around travel teams in the past, and even like. You know, when you come up as a kid, you kind of hear about the guys that are on Team Cat and stuff. And those teams do well, like they don't get embarrassed in the slightest. They win, you know, a decent amount of times. Um, Now, they obviously aren't playing against the very best five star recruits in America every single time. But, you know, still obviously solid opposition. Um, For me, this is just a case of like, you know, maybe this is me not being informed, but I'd never heard of West Toronto Prep. You know what I mean? I looked at this and I was like, West Toronto. Is this like West Toronto, like Pennsylvania or Ohio or something? Is there a Toronto somewhere else that I don't know about? Because this is a place I never heard of. And kind of being around, you know, the football scene in Ontario, you kind of know of like, you know, a football North, for example, or like, you know, basketball, the Orangeville Prep, that's huge. You kind of have an idea of these schools that do these things. And I just, I had never heard of anything about this program um, or any of the people involved. have evolved. So for me, all I can say is that, I mean, I don't know much about it. It's a terrible look. And, you know, I, you know, I just, I feel really bad for the players, you know, having to go through something like that. And, you know, I'm sure it's it's going to be, you know, kind of a, a bit of a, an embarrassing situation for them going forward. And, you know, just just, you just, just got to do your research and your due diligence and kind of, you know, try and avoid these situations as much as possible. If you're like a parent or like a kid growing up, you know, always try and get a second opinion and vet these things because you don't know kind of what the deal is. I certainly don't in this case.
1: Tom, do you see there being more tangible outcomes of this that are either negative or perhaps positive in the uh, scope of Canadian football as a result of this? Or is this just going to be something that will get laughed about and brought up for years to come, but ultimately won't really affect how we do things on our side of the border, nor the kids that still end up getting the athletes that get recruited to go to schools south of the border as well? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to kind of look at this because... I
2: truly think that from a Canadian standpoint, this game is actually going to help us because it's going to at least vet out certain teams that are going to go down to the States. If nothing else, there's going to be some other prep schools that are going to be terrified of being put on blast on a national stage as well and going up against an IMG or another real powerhouse of schools that are down there. Um, on the opposite side of things on the American side, I think it's really hurt what the Americans think of the Canadian game. Not that to, to say that they had a great opinion of it to start with, um, but that's, you know, when you say a Toronto school or a Canadian school, no matter what, everybody's just going to assume that this is a representation of all of Canada, especially if you don't do any of your research or or look into what our game actually looks like. So uh, through Going through things on Twitter and seeing a lot of people tweet about this, it seems like, you know, West Toronto Prep, we have never re- never really heard of it. And a lot of people had a lot of really negative things to say about it. So even before you get into, you know, the quality or the skill of the players, it seemed like as an organization, it wasn't the greatest. So it really wasn't a good representation of what we have up here. But at the very least, it's going to encourage that the Canadian game uh, gets more you know, focus on it, more prep to go along with things before we do anything major like this. Um, It was a shame because I remember back in, I think it was 2012 or 2013, the NFL network actually played a CFL game right at the beginning of the season because obviously the CFL starts before the NFL season does. And it happened to be one of the best games ever. It was Montreal versus Saskatchewan when both of them were at their peaks. Anthony Calvillo and S.J. Green just completely go off. Final scores like 41-39 or something like that with an S.J. Green toe tap in the end zone. Like it was the greatest game that you could have possibly put out. And I remember all of the American buzz that was around that. Like even the NFL network was talking about that game for weeks afterwards. And so that kind of helped build Things up. And obviously, people f- quickly forget about that because they focus on the American game and whatever else. But uh, we went from something like that where it was so promising to now, you know, being back at this or at least in the taste of the Americans' mouth right now. Which, so,
0: which is like hilarious because you think of like where football is right now and you know, we're at a point where like, we're getting kids at Alabama and things like that. Top D1 programs. They're Canadians all around the NCAA. You know, you don't have to look hard to find them. It seems like every other game I see on, on a Saturday, you know, they're talking about some kid from, from, the kid from Illinois, from Montreal, for example. You know what I mean? This stuff's incredibly common now. So it's just kind of funny to think that like where we really are is definitely forward, but the perception, yeah, we're, we're taking a, a bit of a step back here for sure. And, for and, sure. Of
1: course, and of course, perception is reality in so many ways. Last thing I'll say on it, um, I mean, and we were talking about this before as well, and it's not always the the, the best American competition, but there has been that, that Team Canada the uh, squad that went down and, and faced, uh, you know, whatever version of the American team uh, that was as well. But what I'll be interested to, to see, and and this is in no way me calling anyone out to do so, but just if they feel the need to speak on this, will be the umpteen number of Americans who play in the CFL or the number of Americans that we've seen in the OUA someone like the possible rookie of the year in Joey Zorn or a guy like John Edward, who I got to interview a few years back with Dakota and being a young man from Florida, albeit. So, you know, we talk about Americans. Once again, we're painting with a broad brush. I'm certain in Michigan, they have a better sense of what Canadian football is than they do in Florida, where of course IMG is and talking with John Doe about just the, you know, when he'd go home and they'd be like, they play football up in Canada like the literal like um stereotypes of Canadians living in igloos and on ice flows are like in parts of the US are legit so having folks like that who've played in these the, the number of leagues that we have here either at the collegiate level and in the CFL I'll be curious to see if they speak on this at all as well once again not me trying to put pressure on anyone to do so but just it's one thing when we hum and haw about it as Canadians but when people who have um, come from the states and played our game just interested to see whether they speak up on this in in, in any regard because I imagine that'll carry more weight than uh, you know folks like us doing so let's Let's put that to bed for right now. I'm sure this story is not going to go anywhere, so it may give us plenty of fodder for the offseason, but we still have several weeks before uh, we will be calling it a wrap on the 2022 uh, U-Sports season. Of course, our OUA season will be coming to an end next week, uh, save for whichever team between Western and Queens advances to the National Semis and perhaps the Vanier Cup. So let's start as we normally would. With our players of the week. We're gonna do things a little differently now that we have the three of us on the recap pod. And also since there's only four teams, we all somewhat deliberated, talked about who we liked, and we're just gonna go one by one, talk about some of these individuals. Nate, I'll give you the opportunity to speak on offensive player of the week.
0: Yeah, I think it's gotta be Keon Edwards. And you know, there are a couple good performances in these games, you know, a couple good performances of losing efforts as well. But I think, you know, he's the the OUA MVP. Candidate alongside, you know, JP Simakinda. And I feel like, you know, as much as we saw them rotating a lot during the season, um, it really felt like Western, now that they're in the playoffs, has has started to lean on Keon a bit more. Um, and that was definitely evident in this game. 24 carries, 136, and two touchdowns on the day. Um a bit of a slow start for the Western offense, but Keon really got things rolling as the game went on and and they didn't, they did not stop rolling at all. So <laughs> shout out to Keon. <laughs> Tom,
1: you're taking the honors of handing out Defensive Player of the Week. Where's it going?
0: Yeah, for
2: this one, we're sticking with the big boys up front. I'm going with Darian Newell, uh, defensive lineman for Queens. Uh, The stats for him say three solo tackles, two sacks, two tackles for loss, and a pass breakup. But the the amount of pressure and hits on uh ben Maricle, throughout the entire game this guy was influencing everything that they could possibly do uh with a guy like jp simakinda who was so dangerous as soon as he gains a little bit of speed the way that you have to stop him is by hitting him in the backfield and that's what darian newell did consistently even if he wasn't always the guy making the tackle he was constantly getting pressure and getting some penetration in there and really disrupting that ottawa offense
1: yeah, that point you make about hitting JP in the backfield, I think is huge. And we'll, I'll save sort of any more thoughts on that till, uh, when we get into that game. Uh, we'll stick with the Ottawa-Queens game for special teams player of the week. You know, like I said, on the one hand, maybe the win deserves some credit because you look at that Laurier game and you see the, let me double check, the 90, what was it, the 96-yard long punt um that was credited or probably 94 long punt credited dawson hodge uh you know very much helped by the wind at his back but we're gonna give it to richard burton uh the one punt return which once again the wind played a factor into it hung up in the air a little bit caught it on a short return i don't even know if he was the actual returner i think he might have just that was a
0: hilarious play because what what happened there and i missed it the first time until i saw the replay but they auto had actually tried to fake the punt so they had a the direct snap to the full to the up back, which I don't, I don't know if it was JP or not, but up, a snap to the up back went right through his hands and then landed at the punter's feet. And then he picked it up and tried to blast it, you know, 20 yards or whatever. But anyways, yeah. And
1: I mean, then Burton and then Burton takes it and takes it 45 yards back for the touchdown as well um, to add to Burton's five receptions and 108 on the day at receiver, which. We'll get into that briefly, but once again, we've talked so much about the wind. Um, is a heck of a performance by him. Um, so those are our players of the week. Let's get into the games in specific, and we'll start in London where the Yates Cup will be hosted. Final score in on this one, the Western Mustangs, 45. The Laurier Golden Hawks, 9. Tom, I believe you and I both went with the under... Uh, or pardon me, went with the Golden Hawks to cover, which early on in this ball game, it certainly felt was the case. Um, I, I would get an angry phone call from my dad if I didn't take this opportunity to to mention that he nudged me at twelve fifty remaining in the second quarter when Jackson White took the QB sneak for the touchdown. He's like, make sure to mention this on the podcast. It was at twelve fifty in the second quarter that this game was over, um, because Western didn't look back at that point. Where I want to set up this this conversation, we can kind of go back to all the machinations in the first half because you better bet I'm going to, I want to talk about Shamari as much as I can on this episode. And Tom, you guys already mentioned going for that onside kick in the wind and everything like that. But I think we need to start in the third quarter because this is a game at the half is 14 to five, pardon me, 14 to nine for Western. Laurier's getting the ball to start the, first, the second half. They are not only getting the ball, but they are getting with the wind at their back. And on their first drive, I believe it was Tanner Nelms fumbles at Western's, Western Recovers. They go on and score seven. The ensuing kickoff, Laurier can't handle the kickoff. Western Recovers, they go down and score again, 14. Now Laurier's next drive, sack fumble, Western Recovers, they go and score the ball. And that might have, I believe they actually, that score came into the, or they might have got a field goal on that one. Because now I'm looking at the box score. It was 17 points in the third quarter, 14 in the fourth. I can't imagine a game like that where your back is already up against the wall. If you're Laurier coming into this one, you fight tooth and nail to keep it tight in the first half. Five points at half. You have to be loving what's happening right now. And Nate, I think the comparison you brought up with Windsor and how Windsor was able to keep it close was really coming into effect in this one. And to have all that happen in the span of your first three drives, you know, my dad might've joked it was over with 1250 left, but there's, I don't know how you bounce back from something like that. Uh, Nate, what were your
0: thoughts watching this game? Go wherever you want with it. No, you're certainly, you know, against most teams, you're not getting away with that, but, uh, you know, these Western Mustangs in particular, Hey, you know, there's, there's no one getting away with that. Um, and, you know, it was a tough day for for Laurier. And as much as even without that stretch, like, to be honest, like, for me, I, I wanted, like, this is the opportunity to shine a light on, I think, a group that, like, often gets overlooked in large part due to Western's high-powered offense. But, man, the Western defense was absolutely nasty, nasty in the game. And, and you know, Laurier did a fine job running the football. But in terms of what they did to Taylor's Elkersman in that passing game, Man, it was, I, I I could feel it in my chest. I remember what those hits feel like, you know what I mean? I, I was getting PTSD watching that game. Uh, they were setting the pressure at all times and they were making him uncomfortable, hitting him constantly. And I think, you know, that really had to be the game plan for them. I, I mean, it's obvious, but really if, if Laurie was going to win the game, you know, El was going to have to be in a rhythm. He was going to have to be efficient. You know, he's going to have to com- complete a few deep shots. Um, but Western is just like, no, 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 we're going to put you on your ass a few times. And then, you know what, you're going to be uncomfortable for the rest of the game. You're going to be looking around watching your back and, you know, Elgin's an extremely tough kid, but, you know, Western really, really had their way. And I think, you know, regardless of turnovers or not, you know, game would have been a bit close in the end in terms of the score line. But like you said, after they scored that first touchdown and took the lead, I wasn't, I I've had the same, you know, same feeling as your dad. I was just like, I don't, I, it's really hard unless there's another pick six or something. It's really hard to see, you know, Laurie kind of getting going here.
1: Tom, I'll, you know, let you take it where you want, but I I feel like in setting up this game and when you've kind of talked about the quote unquote recipe for how to beat Western, Laurier was executing it I'd say quite formidably they took a few big shots early in the game I can't remember which receiver it was where they did the you know sort of fake bubble screen receiver pass downfield which was open and the wind I think just took it a little bit um, uh, t- too much they of course as we said after the pick six you have the wind at your back so everyone's thinking okay this ball going deep and they go onside and they near recovered it this seems like the the almost perfect execution in the first half of the, once again, quote unquote recipe of how you beat Western. What were your thoughts watching this game tightly in the first and then how it got out of hand so quickly there in the second half?
2: I think the game plan going into this game was great. I think Laurier had really put something together that they felt confident in trying to strike as early as, and as often as possible And, you know, getting the deep ball threats, getting that offense going a little bit, uh, what they didn't account for, they didn't prepare for was the wind that was going to happen there. And as soon as that wind starts going like absolute crazy, you have to rely on the run. And my God, there's no team in the country that can rely on the run like Western can. I mean, you look at the, the breakdown in plays just for Western, they threw the ball 20 times and ran it 47 times so that turns into a recipe for success you're just right there and then then you go back to you know what i called the jump ball moments getting that pick 6 was certainly one of them and then the fumbles and then the mishandling of the kickoffs and then the and then the strip sacks and then the and then the and then the so there was a lot of times here where western played unbelievable and that defense was lights out like nate kind of said But there's certain moments where you need to either cut your losses and just try to recover the fumble and maybe you get a punt off or Western does what Western does, recovers it, scores again and slowly puts this game out of reach. So I think if the win wasn't a factor, I truly think that this game would have been a whole lot closer uh, because it did affect both teams and not to say that it would only benefit Laurier. But uh, I think this result was always going to happen. The skill of Western is just on another level.
1: Yeah, you know, it takes me back to in the preview episode where you were like, well, if all else fails, you just feed Keon and Winati the ball (laughs) and you just let them, you know, wreck havoc against Laurier. And to Laurier's credit, even in the face of that rushing attack in the in the first half, you know, guys. Like Brandon Omanua, who who came out for a little bit, looked like he got a bit banged up. Luke Brubacher, like on that front line for them, were playing quite formidably. And then, of course, having guys like Ife Onyemenem An- and then Shamari Hutchison, who, you know, I-, I was joking with Nate before you hopped on. Tom, just, you, you know, w- once again, the preview pod, me kind of making that off Sort of off the cuff comment of being like, yeah, you know, he'll you know he'll just get a fumble recovery for six, and it'll lead to their touch a, a touchdown, and then Laurie will pick up the win. When he got that pick six, there was part of me being like, I feel it like my heart was bursting through my chest, being like, holy cow, I got to get that audio clipped right away and just post that if Laurie goes on to win this game. Um, and of course, I believe that's the last time we'll be seeing uh, Shamari Don, the Laurie Golden Hawk, purple gold or whatever exactly their their color scheme is. Nate, I gotta ask from you know from the quarterback perspective you know i think the obvious take in a game like this or in any game where the wind is such a factor is that when you're throwing into the wind it's you know you can't do it there's part of me watching this game where i'm like is is it fair to argue that throwing with the wind is just as hard like cuz you know we were like it, there were so many balls just sailing we talked about that you know screen pass and obviously once again forgetting which receiver it was that threw the ball downfield they're not you know, truly a quarterback and it's all they do practice after practice. So it's fair that they might've missed, but like that seems like just as big a challenge that perhaps we don't as much talk about. It's always when you throw into the wind, Oh, that's going to script your game plan. But, but what, when you got that extra juice that you're not anticipating, how do you accommodate for that?
0: That's a good, how do you accommodate for that? That's a good question. I wish I had like a more uh, technical answer for, well, Zach, you know, the thing you do is you, you, uh, Position your hips, and but no, man, it's, it's a feel thing, and I think, you know, it's got to be reps. You got to be throwing on the sideline constantly, and even that's not going to cut it because you know once you get past the proverbial one arc ball or the on a line ball, um, anything where you're trying to get it over somebody, you know, it's going to be incredibly difficult. Whether that's in the seam, you know, you're trying to get it up and down quickly, that ball can easily just sail into the safety's hands. But especially, you know, the most obvious being the deep shots, and a team like Laurier where it's, we have to win, we have to capitalize on our deep balls now. And it's, it's still incredibly hard to do that. You know what I mean? You have these incredibly fast guys, but you know, you have a timing thing going in a relationship there and, you know, it's thrown out of whack. And that, that's not something that, you know, you can deal with it. It, it takes an incredible amount of luck, but it's incredibly difficult. Um, and yeah, I can only say that it's, it's a feel thing. It's, it's really, really difficult.
1: You know, and, one of the last things I'll say, you know, talking about once again, the impact of the wind, Brian Garrity kicking the ball for, for, you know, Western talking about a feel thing. He still goes three for three and nails all five of his extra points gets 15 points on a day where the wind was just going absolute, you know, ape, you know, what, um, well, You know, Well, obviously, as we've said with the other teams, as we've seen um, our OUA pool of teams get smaller and smaller as we near the Yates Cup, and we mentioned doing our sort of post-mortems on all these teams. Looking at uh, Laurier, and and Tom, I'll kind of segue this for you to pick up on. With Taylor Elgersma, because you've got to watch them twice in person and calling their games, he's obviously one of the most physically imposing quarterbacks, and we see that in his arm strength, and we see that in his ability to... I mean, he definitely was limping after a few of those hits. It looked like maybe his ankle got rolled up on. Um, But, you know, his size is definitely an advantage. But there was times where I was almost reflected on commentary I'd make on James Keenan early in his career. It is that almost he's a little – and Keenan's nowhere as as, as physically big, but Keenan's just – agility and elusiveness. He, I felt he was sometimes reckless with it when he would be scrambling and going into contact and just my constant like, slide, man, slide. Elgir's obviously in a game like this, you, you got to lay it all on the line. You got to put your body on the line to try and, you know, make something happen late in the game. But there's also times where they're running like a zone action. He reads the D N to hand it off and then he's going full force to drop a shoulder into that D end who is, you know, 50-50 and recognizing it's a run now trying to come down the line. And part of me like, i i cannot imagine maybe i'm wrong in this that like that's what folds and galloway are coaching him up to do like and by the way if you read it's the handoff if it's a 50 50 as soon as that ball's out of your hands go throw a shoulder into him he's a young kid he's a physically imposing dude i'm sure he's you know can take hits as best as 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 as, as well as if not better than any other quarterback but you know, we've seen now what happened to James Keenan getting banged up this year after you know years of maybe a few too many hits that didn't have to be the way uh, or, or be there. Um, thinking about Elgarzma uh, down the line, do, do you think they need to? And once again, this is a very good Western defense. Change up a little bit of get into you know get into play a little more cautious, perhaps at times. Or am I overthinking that? No, I
2: think you're definitely right because there's so many cases of quarterbacks, whether it's recently or past where in the earlier parts of their career, they've been really physical and that's really shown up to be detrimental in the later parts of their career. But like, this is also a dude who against Carlton in the playoff game, I can't remember the exact play. I think it was just like a, um, they needed like a one yard gain or something. He handed off to Quinton and Scott. And as they're trying to uh, fight for yardage, Taylor Elgersma grabs one of the linebackers for Carlton and blocks him 20 yards downfield like just runs with the guy. So I think that's just who he is and he's going to be that physical dude. I think as a coaching staff, it's not realistic for you to ask him to change who he is rather than putting him into certain situations where he can be successful. You know, if this is going to be a guy who's going to be putting his shoulder down and going to be doing whatever, have him roll out, have him have, you know, a bunch of blockers out in front of him and if he does take off running it's probably to the sidelines or if he has to hit anybody it's like a a cornerback who's not going to hit as hard as a linebacker would if you keep him in the pocket consistently and he's trying to find places to run he's either going to hit a defensive lineman or he's going to hit a linebacker that's got a running start and it's really going to take his head off so as a coaching staff i think you need to understand your players what their play type is because no matter what no matter how much coaching you do training or anything else they're always going to revert back to what has made them successful and who they are as people and as players so if you use that to your advantage and knowing that okay i have a guy like elgersma and you know on the opposite side of that that really became beneficial i think it was in the third or the fourth quarter where it was second and ten and elgersma takes off and runs with it and he could have slid and got eight but he lowered his shoulder, hit a couple of Western guys and got the first down. So the dude wants to win. He's willing to do whatever it takes. It's probably going to lead to something in the future. Hopefully not. Hopefully, you know, nothing but health. But if we're going purely on history, it's not always the recipe for success for a quarterback to lower their shoulder. But I think that's who the kid is.
1: Yeah, no, I like how you talk about they have to sort of, but, maybe, like you can't necessarily get that out of him, but how can you sort of focus it so it's to the betterment of the team and to him long term and I'm happy you brought up that long run that he had. Cause I'm pretty sure he ran over Riley McLeod uh, on his way to picking up that first down. Who's, you know, a dude who's normally on the other side of laying those licks. I'm sure most linebackers, even when you see at the size, the sheer size of Taylor, El-Gersma, you're not expecting that type of hit. Nate, how much a, you must see like a young, a young Nate Hobbs watching Taylor out there. Just the pure, like physical Adonis out there. He's slinging the rock. He's making moves left and right with his feet. Is it like, is it like staring into a mirror watching, uh, watching him do his thing for the Golden Hawks, uh,
0: I think it's funny because like him kind of being in his first year as a starter kind of makes me reflect. And like, it's such a pivotal moment because, you know, obviously you're confident you feel good about yourself, but it's really, you, you feel the need that you have to prove yourself to the guys that I'm the guy, you know, I will bleed on this field for you. I will die on this field for you. Like I will do whatever it takes to win. And I feel like early in your career, I feel like that can be kind of, you know, a large part of that is, hey, oh, I see an opportunity. I'm going to go take it to go get on film and, you know, have guys, you know, fire them up on the sidelines and things like that. Um, And I think, like, to Tom's point, I think that is absolutely who he is. And watching Laurie's games over the years, you know, see him drawing with guys a couple times after the play too and things like that, you know, he's a real fiery guy. And I think, you know, having a guy like that as your leader, I I think, you know, is, is tremendous in terms of the morale of the players and things like that. But you know, speaking from, from experience and just things we see, I mean, you don't see guys in the pros doing shit like that. You know what I mean? And there's a reason why, because, you know, you're going to get to a point where your career where it's just like, that's not top of mind for you anymore. And it shouldn't be like, you should be focused on other things in the game. You know I mean? I don't need to go make a block downfield. You know, there are other things in the game that I should be focused on. I need to keep a cooler head, you know, as things go on in the game and things like that. I think it's just, you know, mentality thing as a young guy that like, yeah i need to go out i need to you know do these things prove myself be the guy etc 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 that i think can drive a lot of these decisions and especially interesting because they never run him like designed you know what i mean so it's not like the coaches never put him in a situation where he's really that vulnerable so uh i think it's a bit of a a mentality thing and i think you know kind of as you kind of move on in a a veteran leadership role i I feel like we'll see that a bit less and it won't be the the detriment of the team because you know they i feel like they already have that confidence and belief in him already
1: yeah well and of course Todd Galloway had some success with a, a fairly mobile quarterback back in the day in Jazz Lindsay, so if he wants to make that more of a design piece, he certainly has the know-how to do so quite effectively, but let, let's put this game to bed. Let's say uh, goodbye to the 2022 Laurier Golden Hawks. I, I think a team that, across the board, we are all extremely excited to see how they're looking going into 2023, and the Western Mustangs will proceed into the Yates Cup, where they'll be hosting the Queens Golden Gales, who got their... By way of a victory at home against the Ottawa Gigi's final score in this game: the Queens Golden Gales 35. The Ottawa Gigi's 13. It's a game 17 to nothing at the half. Nate kind of mentioned it. Maybe it feels like it's going a bit, you know, sideways. Ottawa comes out. That beautiful play action, pump fake, bomb down the sideline by miracle, arguably play of the year if you will um but as well at the same time you know it just felt like in that first first half and continuing into the second ottawa really had a tough time getting jp going which i'm sure that was queens plan i'm sure even if queens just said we'll play him straight up they'd still have a difficult time getting jp going because of how formidable that defense is and I you know, I think I give I shout out to give a shout out to the, the people who sort of do the, the Queen's production on the television side and sort of their keys to the game. And they presented as far as the running attacks these two teams as Hercules versus the Hydra, where you have the one just beast just putting the whole team on his back versus this team in Queens where you got Kasari, Souls, and Longa. And I thought that was just whoever came up with that at Queens. That was just beautiful imagery. And uh, I suppose, unlike the actual story of Greek mythology, in this case, the Hydra came out uh, in victory in this one. Nate, the are your Golden Gales. I know you mentioned you might be making an appearance uh, at the Yates if, if some of your fellas kind of make want to make the trip down there. Um, what were your thoughts watching
0: watching this game? I think it was interesting watching kind of Ottawa's game plan. You know, they got the win first and, you know, they did start the game throwing the ball quite a bit on first down. And it was a bit of a, you know, obviously, I feel like they probably had an inkling or a feeling that, you know, you know what, this isn't going to be a game where we can just lean on JP. Um, and they were correct about that. That's what they were thinking. Um, but they really like the first drive they got around midfield and they punted and it was like, OK, this is good. They're playing the field position game. You know, it seems like everything's going to plan. But every single time, basically, that Queens was backed up inside their 10 or their 20 or whatever, they get a couple first downs and they'd get out and they put it away and they'd still be in a decent situation field position-wise. And, you know, I feel like that was just over and over that happened in, in the first quarter. And I think Queens in general was backed up so many times in the game. They only gave up one safety, I believe, the whole game. And it felt like every other drive, you know, they were backed up. So, like, credit to the Queens offense on that front. Like, that, that's something we talked about in the preview pod, I think in the Western game, but it it's such a key point in time when you get into November football um, here on on the north side of the border, you know. But I think, yeah, I feel like it's those those missing those punches early for Ottawa ultimately came back to bite them because you saw when they got the wind again in the third quarter, they had their punches, but you know what, Queens had the answer time and time again, and it's just maybe if you connected on a couple of those other ones early you're not kicking the field goal to make it a one-score game. You're kicking the field goal to maybe tie the game or something like that. And, you know, to me, it's like, seeing them leave the first quarter without any points, I was like, oh, man, it's going to be really tough from here on out, no matter what the Queen's offense does.
1: Tom you know Nate brings up a point that definitely stood out to me watching it as well of how Ottawa did come out taking a bit more uh, of an aggressive passing attack and it really made me think about the commentary you had coming out of Carlton's defeat against Laurier last round where it was like your best player is your quarterback first and foremost you haven't gotten your run game going all year long and this is obviously a flip side where the Ottawa running the Ottawa Gigi's running back is the M, arguably going to be the MVP of the whole league and they still had the wherewithal to say you know what this game will probably our best chance is going to be getting some big plays, some big chunk plays and then maybe opening up the pass the running attack by virtue of that what were, what was your thinking in seeing them you know not lean on their MVP candidate perhaps as much as folks would have suspected going into this game
2: Certainly an interesting call. Uh, I would say every time that JP actually got a chance to get the ball, uh, I don't think in the entire game that I watched, I ever saw one person tackle him. Even if he was getting hit in the backfield, it was just to slow him up so that three or four other Queens defenders could come down and tackle him. But he did have one long run of 25 yards and that's where you saw that explosiveness and the strength of jpc mckinda he was tossing off uh defenders i think he ran over a couple of guys until finally was dragged down by two or three people and you can just kind of see like that's what you need to get to or however you need to do that whether it's through your standard you know power run game or you want to get them out in the screen or to get him the ball any way that you can he is the focal point of the offense the reason why we picked jpc mckinda as the oua mvp over a key edwards or anybody else is because he is the focal point of that offense without him they are not nearly as good as they are when they have him now not to say that you know western wouldn't be worse without keon edwards but you have edward winati you have a great passing game and with the offensive line in front of them you can really make a decent running back out of anybody and then keon edwards obviously takes it to that next level and he's great but jpc McKinda is everything for that team and when he doesn't get going it's very rare that an ottawa team kind of comes forward with that now like we've been saying one of, if not the best play of the day, year, was that play action pass by Ben Maracle. And he really showed he has the capabilities to be a great quarterback. But there's just been so many inconsistencies with that, and especially with the wind that was happening there and how difficult it is to throw. It was very interesting to me how uh, heavy they were on the pass rather than focusing on you know, their star running back in J.P.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, in, in, in you sort of setting up the defensive player of the week in, in Newell, I, you know, it, it really, you. Know, we talked about how JP wasn't really getting past the first line, if not getting some kind of contact. And he ends up on the day with an average of 6.1, which most running backs will, most teams will take out of their star running back. But as you were kind of saying, what made that, them so special is when he's breaking those carries of you know, 15 to 20, where he's getting just bursting through that first line and then, yeah, carrying one, two defenders, uh, taking him down for, for the big carry, um, the big yardage, I sh- should say. One thing I'll say before passing back to Nate that I, I didn't, I, I had to double check while, while Tom was just speaking there because I didn't think I saw him going through the game and, and the participation, um, uh, proves this to be correct, but. You know, we talk about how much they relied on the passing game. We didn't see fourteen Daniel Odejo out there for the Gigi's, and obviously Jean had a very good game, one hundred forty-six and a touchdown. That touchdown, of course, being the play-action pass we've kept talking about from Miracle. Rodney Estime two for thirty-seven, a, a guy who we know as the talent from what he did in his rookie year, but kind of, you know, wasn't as productive this year as we thought. But Odejo was a guy that was was missing for them. I, I don't know if I'm missing something from the, going back to the Windsor game or before that, which. Ah, uh, sort of had him, you know. Th- th- that leads me to know why he he wasn't in this game. Um, but d- worth noting there, um, you know, perhaps a little bit more analysis needed on the queen side of things. But Nate, I'll pass it back to you, sort of, to to carry on at this point.
0: Yeah, I think it also like going back to the running point is <laughs> is when you get into a seventeen nothing game, it-, it can be. You know, in a negative game script, it can be hard to kind of just just put your head down with JP, you know, and that as well, you know, definitely plays a large role in it. Um, And even still, like, you look at Ottawa's offensive stats on the day, you know, 260 yards of total offense, only nine first downs. So you're not really moving the ball a lot. You know, it's a lot of three and outs. And, you know, without that big play, man, like, it was really tough sledding, and I think you know, and kind of with their way to push back and, and everything, it, it could be kind of, you know, maybe make this game seem a bit underwhelming, but it, I mean, you know, again, going back to the Queens defense, you know, it was another tremendous performance and, you know, seeing how they, that defense performed and how Western defenses performed, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, you know, next week is going to be very, very interesting and seemingly two teams that are almost like a mirror of one another to some extent. And I'm, you know, almost certain that that is by design. You look at the head coaches of both teams and they have a relationship there, obviously. So, you know, again, just, you know, nothing but credit to Queens and credit to Ottawa as well, because, you know, I think it would have been really the way the game was going. I wasn't expecting them to come back like that, but throwing a, multiple key punches late like that and getting it within a one score game on two separate occasions. Um, But in the end, you know, tails all this time, Queens just had too much in the end and, and you make that one last mistake on the fake punt and and just like that, the game's over.
1: Yeah. And you know, I, I'm I'm so excited for this Yates Cup rematch and, and you know, what Queens has shown all year going back to that game against Western and just how formidable a performance they put up. The one thing that just is 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 tough, you know. Thinking about players that we didn't see on the field for Ottawa, we look at the Queen side of things. Obviously, we talked about not seeing seven out there, and I do want to get into a discussion about have we seen enough out of Vrenick in through through what four games as a true starter and maybe five taking over? Maybe it's four, including the one he took over in. Um, whether he's got enough juice to to lead this team this year to a, a Yates over Western in London not seeing number four, mm-hmm. Ethan Martin, a guy that we've seen banged up for them all year. And he came back in sort of the latter half of the season. And he's just going back to that game against Western. He was their best player across the board, just making plays uh, left, right and center um, in that linebacker and sometimes safety position for them. Um, so two key cogs on their offense and on their defense in uh, obviously, Keenan having been out for as long as he have. I know Tom, you were doing some like diving into the the photos coming out of Queen's practice and trying to diagnose whether oh is you know is Keenan there? And There would be nothing that would bring me more joy than to see Keenan number seven running out onto the field at Western Alumni Stadium. But then you know missing Ethan as well um, is obviously just huge when we talk about how just dynamic that Western rushing attack is. Tom, I'll, I'll sort of go back to you uh, a is this Queens defense shown that without Martin out there, they can still hang with a team like Western on offense and has Rican shown enough pardon me for what he can do leading that offense that they can put up enough points to hang with the Western Mustangs in the Yates cup. Obviously I'm getting ahead of our preview pod. They'll come up at the end of the week, but just thinking about those two guys being, you know, perhaps out for this Yates cup.
2: Yeah. I think these Queens gales, how do I put this the best way to kind of prepare for a team like Western is probably going up against an Ottawa team like this, because I think that running back uh, for JPC McKenna is, you know, the one of, if not the best running back in the league right now. And you are going up against a pair of backs that if they're not one, there are two and three or two and two respectively in Edward Renati and Keon Edwards. So you've already dealt with, a fantastic running back and you've seen the recipe for success. Now the way that Ottawa runs the ball is very different than Western. They love to pull uh, offensive linemen, get fullbacks into the game, have like three or four guys at the point of attack and then have their running backs kind of make some cuts, follow their blockers and get out of there. And that even if you have a solution for that in the early game, having that constantly throughout the game is a hell of a thing to kind of ultimately stop throughout the entire game i think the recipe for success in that sense is to score quickly and often and get western out of you know running the ball because they feel like they need to throw now even when you force them to throw you've got evan hillock savant magny jones and all of those amazing receivers that can still burn you as well but i think as good as that is that's almost less scary than the running attack and the running game that Western has. So, it's going to be a big focal point for Queens consistently stopping the run and making it so that we, got, we constantly talk about like winning first down and getting four, five, six yards so that you get a really manageable second down because you really don't have a lot of plays for second and nine, second and 10, second and 11 to consistently get first down. So if you can consistently win first down, especially in that run game, you give yourselves a chance, but it's not an easy route no matter what.
1: Nate, I'll, I'll throw kind of the same idea towards you of just those two key players for, uh, for Queens missing. But also, is there something to be said about if Keenan is ready to go, given that vrenick has been the dude for now, almost a month that do you just keep rolling with the young buck, given that he's been doing his thing with the offense? Or do you just say, no, no, no. If Keenan is ready, it is him, you know, with a bullet. There's no question whatsoever. <laughs>
0: I think the issue is when you get in these situations that if, you know, they are good enough to go, the reality is there's, there's almost certainly like no way they're a hundred percent. You know what I mean? And, and when you're playing against the best team in the country, I don't know if you can really afford to, to, to be kind of, you know, not at your a hundred percent best, you know what I mean? So you know, from that aspect, everyone's dealing with injuries, obviously, at this time of the year. But, you you know, if you're starting quarterback and, you know, if not the best, you know, definitely top three guys on, on that defense. So it absolutely hurts. And, you know, in terms of, of is is Reekin good enough? You know, I do think he's good enough in terms of you look at how this team plays. They're not a team. They're not going to ask him to go throw for 350 yards against Western, you know. That's, you know, Laurie certainly couldn't do that. And I don't think Queens is really built for that either. I don't think they'll try to do it. Um, and I think it'll, it'll go back to what Tom says is, is can you keep him in a positive situation? Can you get a lead early so that, you know, instead of having to make these desperate plays that he's only trying to get a key first down every now and again, you know what I mean? Where you're not completely relying on him for success. And even if you are completely relying on, on him for success, he has a talent, I think, you know, to do that—that's <laughs> an incredibly large ask for a guy who's in his is in his first year starting. And you know, if I I wouldn't say that that is the likely outcome. You know, if they get in that situation, we saw happen with Queens last year. You know, we we talked about the same game plan for them, and and frankly, it didn't go that way at all. It actually went like the complete opposite. They went down pretty early. So, you know, Rican obviously we've said it week after week. He's a very talented kid. Um, you know, this year. They have Richard Burton in the lineup. They didn't have him there last year. You have another guy there, Naden O'Neill, who we can rely on, who is like a, a grad transfer, so another veteran guy. And I think that was another thing last year is they had, you know, they were relying on, on second-year kids out there at receiver going against, you know, Western secondary with, with guys that are all Canadians, you know what I mean? So it's a, it's a tough matchup. So I think in this case, you know, you're missing Keenan. I think that hurts so much because of how like how f- much more efficient he was earlier in the season and his decision-making and his, his di- dynamic ability to make plays with his feet that, you know, while freaking when things go off script, he's much, he's very calm and composed. And actually like his like five years of hair away ahead of where he should be in that aspect in terms of, you know, calmness when the play breaks down, but um, you know, it definitely hurts not having, you know, The veteran there in Keenan, but I, you know, I wouldn't say that this is going to absolutely, that there's no chance now. There's still, you know, there's still a path there, I think.
1: Yeah, and there was a, a handful of plays or one or two plays in particular to your point about Vriken showing some of that maturity where he didn't have his, you know, first, second read. Pressure starts to come, able to get out of the pocket. And then he doesn't put his head down right away. He's still looking to make the play and, and, you know, kind of reads maybe a DB pressing up on him, is able to dump it off to his receiver, um, which I thought was a really heady play for a guy who has the athleticism to just say, let me just make it happen with my feet, but still recognizing that the most dangerous way he can uh, attack the team is by getting it to his, his receivers
0: and whatnot. And let's be honest, you're in the eighth cup. You know what? You're going to, you should pull it down for a couple first downs. You know what I mean? That's you. Do you want to win the game? That's probably going to have to happen.
1: Well, let's not step on our our Yates Cup preview pod too much, um, and perhaps just take this opportunity to, of course, say uh, say au revoir to the Ottawa Gigi's of twenty twenty two. Definitely, if we were to just say, uh, you know, who are if we were to talk about who our favorite teams watching this year, it's of no secret that they were my favorite team to watch this year, though, uh, uh, sputtering a bit down the stretch. And um, you know, though we uh, though their season comes to an end. We will not certainly be hearing the end. Of some of the players on this team as we get into season, pardon me, award season um, with the likes of Simon Kinda and James Peter, and who knows, even a Ben Miracle, and you know, if, if there's a most improved or something along those lines, or at least in the conversations that might be happening sort of writ large. Um, so we'll do our, our full breakdown on sort of where their position going into the offseason later on, and, uh, and we'll put this game to bed. Um, but gentlemen, this gives us the rematch from 2021. Tom, from the first day, the three of us hopped on a pod together, you know, you're talking about that this is a Queens team that has this massive chip on their shoulder coming off of that home loss. That what was it, 29, 28 to nothing uh, beat down Western put on them. I think, Nate, when after that game happened, you and I were on the podcast like yeah, it wasn't that bad. But yeah. at the end of the day, when you're at home and your arch, 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 arch rival comes in and does that to you, it's not a good look and it's not a good feeling. And there's no doubt that fueled them all season long. Tom, I'll start with you. Last thoughts wrapping up this semi-final week of action in the OUA.
2: I think all of the habits from each of these teams kind of showed through. I think Western and Queen specifically went back to what they're good at, the running game for both of them and just kind of pounded the rock, ran away with the game at the very end of it. Um, obviously, Ottawa gave Queens a bit of a scare in that third quarter, but it was always going to be it really felt like it was always going to be like this, you know, uh, Western and Queens, almost that storybook rivalry that uh, you're really hoping and expecting for, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of talent on these GGs and the, laurier golden hawks teams that i was happy to to be on display you know you brought it up a couple of times here but seeing a guy like shamari hutchinson get a uh a pick six early on in the game it just brings a smile to your face and you want to you want to see some of these seniors go out on a on their terms almost obviously their terms would have been a championship but uh regardless of that they still played their hearts out and it's always a it's always a great thing to see so uh, I was happy with everything that I saw for the most part, even though the scores aren't necessarily indicative. I think both of these games were really close, at least at one point. And then obviously Western kind of taking over in the second half and Queens doing that in the fourth quarter, but it was enjoyable. They were enjoyable games to watch at the very least.
1: Yeah, similarly to the comment I made at the end of last week, uh, I would love to get like a bronze medal matchup of Laurier and Ottawa, because um, I, you know, I, we can talk about how close Queens and Western are. That Ottawa and Laurier squad, and we saw it reflected in their game early in the season. I would give, I would give anything to watch them play one more time uh, this season. Nate, last words coming
0: out of this weekend. I'm gonna put on my Stephen A. Smith, hot take certified hat i'm gonna say we're entering our like cleveland cavaliers gold state warriors era in the OUA, and i think that it's two years in a row that we've seen this matchup and i don't think that it's going to just end here um i think you know Western, you know sure have a lot of seniors but i mean we know what their ability is to replace guys you know i feel it's almost kind of cheating saying that they're going to be here because wow that's a real hot take but i think you look at queens a lot of their key players still have eligibility left. There aren't like a ton of seniors on this team. And we have a situation, you know, where we have Hillock and Vreken, you know, both second year guys kind of going into this matchup. And I think, you know, where these programs are at right now and the recruiting and everything like that, I, I do think they're kind of a, a step above of what everyone's doing. Um, you know, that is an outside perspective. You know, I could totally be raw on that, but, you know, I think this could be sort of the beginning of, you know, Golden State, Cleveland, you know, Alabama, Clemson, you know, however you want to look at it, I think that this is going, the next couple of years here, you might be seeing this one another couple of times for sure, at the least.
1: And with Western taking the first one, will Daniel Valente Jr. play the Draymond Green role of kicking, (laughs) let's say Alex Vriekin in the nuts, in the LeBron James role to get himself kicked out of the game, leading to a Queens-Golden Gales victory? Who knows? Uh, But we'll break down that game in uh, more thorough detail on Friday. And we'll be speaking to you then at 55.